Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, would you please turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. I want you to know that our church is praying for you this morning uh, in Walthamstow. We love what God is doing among you, and I've been watching what's been happening here at KT for many years. Uh, One of my first visits here was back in the 80s when I first came to London, and it's just great to see what God is continuing to do. But the best days of KT are not behind it. There are still some wonderful things that have yet to be done. There's wonderful testimony of what you have achieved and what's been accomplished here, and we're so grateful to God for all of that message and and, uh, testimony. But believe me, he's still got more. So here we are today. Let's read from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. If I have a message for this, or title for this message, I would call it Hold Steady. Hold Steady, Discerning and Defeating Church Drift. So let's read. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders, various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We'll pause there. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come before you humbly this morning. We ask that you grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Grant that the eyes of our heart would be flooded supernaturally with light, perception, insight, a clarity of understanding that will enable us to grasp what is the wonderful hope of your calling for us. What is the upward and onward projection of being ushered into the purposes of God and understanding the richness of your inheritance in your saints, the wonder and the glory of what's been invested in us through the mercy of your heart. And help us, Father, to perceive with increasing clarity the fact that the same power that is working in the church is the very same power that raised Christ from the dead. The exact same power. So help us perceive these things today as we read your word. May our ears be open and our hearts be tender as you speak through the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' powerful name. Friends, in recent days, I have become personally uh, somewhat distressed at news that I've heard around the Christian press Stories that I have heard recited to me by pastors. Uh, I travel a lot and deal with a number of different leaders. I've just returned from Germany from a wonderful church planting conference. About 500 people came to see how we can plant churches that will reshape the face of church across Europe. These were young lives. I had such hope and such heart in those meetings because it was young lives that were in there, still passionate for these things. But we were all talking about points of concern that have happened in our nation and nations because they they were gathered from all kinds of places. 
and the controversy and the pressures that the church is facing. I'm thinking of things like the controversy over sexual identity. I don't know where you are in that conversation or where your thinking and sentiment might be this morning. You can have whatever sentiment and thinking you want. I'm trying to hold mine to scripture. Um, I'm trying to make sure that even in a culture that wants to cancel anybody that disagrees with them and forces people into saying what they want people to say and having to comply to other people's opinions even when I think that the rationality for those opinions is not grounded. So it's a real pressure to stand up for truth in a culture that's trying to affirm non-truths. So we've got that difficulty and we've got a church that doesn't really know how to speak to that sometimes. We've even got a church which is beginning to agree with a sentiment or an understanding which isn't even affirmed by our own scriptures. Look, I don't impose on you the fact that you have to believe my Bible with me, but you can't stop me believing it. I'm allowed to believe this. I'm allowed to have a divergent point of view. I don't have to agree with what the culture is saying. And so it's unfair and unlawful for you to cancel me because I don't agree with you. All that that is is manipulation and bullying. And our churches have been manipulated and bullied before. In fact, from the very first century, our churches were bullied and manipulated, but we're still here. We will continue to be here. Uh, I've spoken to leaders who are concerned about the lockdown returns, people who, because we had this pandemic and the problems of not being able to have church, have suddenly taken time off church and just said, well, I don't know if I'll come back, or I'll come back regularly, but I won't be coming back frequently. So you'll see me once a month, or once every two months. I'm regular, but I'm not frequent. And people are going, what's happening with that? What kind of discipleship behaves like that? Especially when in the light of the book of Hebrews, it says, don't forsake the physical assembling of yourselves together. Don't do that. So what kind of behavior, what kind of heart posture do we have if we behave like that? Something's not right. We've got financial scandals in the church. I was reading uh, the other day a, a story of a prophet overseas taking millions of pounds from people claiming that this is all godly and right and proper, but actually it's money laundering and his connections with politics make it something very, very dangerous. We've got sexual impropriety that's happening in the church in increasing measure. It distresses me that some of the stories that have emerged have happened in the lives of Christian leaders. And there are people who are in the world saying, listen, we may live that way because we don't have a conviction, but you preach something different. If you don't believe what you actually preach, why are you sharing that rhetoric with us? So we're only complaining about you because you're not doing what you say you said you would do. So don't blame us if we don't practice what you preach, but you find us practicing what you practice. And of course... Um, there are all kinds of other stories of power abuse and the inappropriate and levels of alcohol that even some leaders have succumbed to and have made poor decisions in the light of having their thinking blurred by substance abuse. No, I'm not one of those preachers that says you have to be teetotal. Jesus wasn't. They called him a wine bibber. They did. He sat and had wine. He turned water into very good wine, actually. But he never preached one sermon with slurred speech and was never arrested under a DUI. That's our Jesus. But some people just take their liberty too far, and it becomes a bondage to them and a confusion. 
If I call you some names of people who were my preaching heroes and I love them dearly, and to this day I still love them, but their shadow over their story. People like Bill Hybels. How many would ever think of saying our weekly attendance, I was at the conference when they said this, our weekly attendance at this church is 25,000 people. And I went, oh God, you're doing great things. Yeah, that fantastic leader has got a shadow over his story at this point, after years of faithful study and work. Ravi Zacharias was a man whose eloquence and learning impressed me deeply, challenged me to study, challenged me to say, I can't be a sloppy, lazy pastor. Let me understand history. Let me do my research. Let me be able to speak to a, a culture that wants good answers, clear thinking from the church, because some of the thinking in the church is so fuzzy, so superficial. Some believers are just so ignorant. They can't speak even in their canteen or on their campus or at their workplace or to their family. They sit down quietly when conversations are going on and they don't agree with the conversation but they just don't have the ability to articulate truth because they don't study. I'm talking to you. <laughs> Everybody's looking at the person next to them saying, is he, is he speaking? To, is he speaking to, are you resonating with this? Brian Houston, I was so impressed with conferences I'd been at the same time and I was sorry about the stories he had to challenges he had to go through his own personal life and family but there were shadow stories about his own behavior that will hurt him for a long time to come I'm saddened by that I sat on a youth board with Mike Pilavachi I've never met a guy as passionate for youth ministry and as dynamic in his presentation of truth to young people as Mike. So it seems odd to me that in the context of Soul Survivor, where such wonderful things happened and such life transformation occurred for young people, that there could be a shadow story happening at the same time and in the same space. I'm not sure where Mike is today. I'm not sure where he'll be tomorrow. I'm just concerned because... These things and these pressures have a way of destabilizing Christians. They go, you know, I'm not even sure I'm going to continue my faith. Or I just feel like I've got permission now to drift myself. And I'm going, whoa, 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 hold it. Let's be careful here. But I get it. I understand it. Because who knows what's going to happen next? So I decided for my own soul that I would try and find a biblical example of a church in crisis where people just need to stay focused, stay steady, remain faithful to God. I just, I just needed to find the keys that could help us do it. I want to stay faithful, don't you? Amen. I want to stay focused. I want to remain fruitful. So my studies turn to the book of Hebrews, a passage from which I just read today. You may ask, well, why did I choose the book of Hebrews? <coughs> I chose the book of Hebrews even though I knew that uh, scholars were grappling with the authorship of the book. We don't know who wrote this book. We actually don't know. Uh, they're struggling with the style of the book. Is it a, a sermon? Is it a letter? Is it a sermon contained in a letter? We're, we're not clear on the literary, literary style, and lots of research has gone into all of these things. So there were question marks over some aspects to do with the book of Hebrews today. But one thing any reader of the book of Hebrews understands is the purpose of this letter 
is not unclear. It's very clear. And we need to be honest about it. Raymond Brown, Bible scholar who was responsible for the uh, documentary of the book of Hebrews in that best-selling series, The Bible Speaks Today. It's a wonderful set of uh, books and commentaries you should buy if you're building your own personal library. But Raymond Brown, Dr. Raymond Brown said this. This magnificent letter to the Hebrews was written to a group of first century Christians who were in danger of giving up. And it's clear from even a casual reading of the letter that the times were hard for Jewish Christians especially. Many of them had been exposed to fierce persecution. They had been physically assaulted. Their homes had been plundered. Some had been cast into prison on account of their faith. Others had been ridiculed in public because of their resolute trust in Jesus. You see, this is who's been written to. These are the recipients of this letter. And the clue about the location of these recipients, for me, may be found in chapter 13, verse 4, or 24, of this book, where the writer says, the Christians from Italy send you their greetings. Friends, if this letter was being sent to the church in Rome, then the persecution that Nero initiated against the church in around AD 64 may well be the context that created the problems that we read about in this book. All Christians in that context, whether you were Jewish or Gentile, suffered horribly during that season. But the additional pressure on Jewish Christians was what concerned this writer. It did. Christianity was at that point now considered an illegal religion. But Judaism was afforded recognized state registration. So if you wanted freedom from the pressure directed at the church, all you had to do was publicly renounce your Christian faith and return to the synagogue. And this sounds like the kind of drift and the temptation to walk away that the writer of the book of Hebrews is cautioning these believers to resist and to avoid. I think this is where the letter was headed. And the dangers are when the church is under pressure when the church is facing antagonism, for whatever reason, the danger of drifting, of taking the road of least oppression and resistance is very attractive. Very attractive. And sometimes believers just say, let me take it easy. Life outside is getting very difficult. Look, friends, let's be honest. You didn't come to Christ in the context where making the decision for Jesus could cost you your life could mean that people could confiscate your possessions or take away your children or put you in prison or kill you. I mean, these first century Christians faced incredible, incredible pressures. That's why Jesus said, look, I need to tell you, you shouldn't be afraid of those who can only kill the body. You shouldn't. Be afraid of the one who can separate you from himself. Your soul will fly into an eternity without the grace of God. That's the one you need to fear. Don't even be afraid when they haul you into the courts. You have to stand before the magistrates and the judges and a panel of a jury. Don't don't be afraid. On the basis of your faith, 
you're put under that kind of legal duress and pressure. Because he said at that time, when you were asked to speak, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. But the fact he has to tell people that might happen to you. Can you imagine hearing that? That's going to affect the way you process. Am I going to be a Christian or not? Most people in this room have never had that context for making the decision to follow Jesus. But the pressures are building against the church. I mean, all you have to do to be a target of antagonism in our day is to say that you believe Jesus is not a way to God, but the way. If you're telling people in a pluralistic culture that Jesus is a way to God, they'll applaud you for your tolerance and big-heartedness. But if you say he is the way, that the Christian God is everybody's God, you'll quickly find that you're considered a bigot, small-minded, and people will try to cancel you. I mean, really, keeping a clear, focused Christian testimony in our day is going to cause problems for you. And you've got to make up your mind when the pressures really build, do I drift or do I stay steady? Do I deny him or do I hold on to the truth? There could be all kinds of internal collapse in our churches. And there will be. There will be. Look at the story of the book of Acts when a man who's lame is healed and they threaten those disciples an external pressure. But they are not worried. They pray and they're comfortable. But then we go inside the church. And inside the church, we have a problem with deception. When a man and his wife try to lie to their pastor about what they put in the offering. And they're disciplined and they die. Then the attack comes from the outside again. This time, we're not threatening the disciples. They are beaten and thrown in prison. But they don't mind. Because they've already made the decision, if that's what it costs to be a Christian, I'm still going to be a Christian. And then the problem comes in, inside again. This time it's not deception, but division between the Jewish widows and the Greek widows. And the church resolves that problem. Then they get an external problem. This time it's not a threat, it's not a beating, but Stephen gets murdered. You reading your Bibles? You see how the external escalation happens? But inside the church, the two biggest problems have been and will continue to be deception and division. We need to know that we are going to stand firm in spite of it all, that we will not drift or deny. You see, when I talk about the dangers of drift and denial, as lofty as the revelation of Christ is and as wonderful as it is to receive his goodness, his forgiveness, and his redemptive grace, none of that revelation stops the fact that you still have the freedom of will. You still make a decision whether you're going to grow in your faith or go from your faith. You still have the choice about staying focused and faithful in your Christian life. And there were clearly times when I have known people do these two things, they say, I no longer identify as a Christian. Even though they know it to be true, they've said, I deny this. I don't want this anymore. Or they've just drifted. They've just slipped away from the truth. And in the book of Hebrews, 
There are a number of different passages, and a lot of writers I've read think these passages are, well, they label them as problem passages. They're not really problems, they're just difficult to handle because they challenge us so deeply. They're chapters like chapters 2 or chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews. I urge you to go home and study these things and you'll find out what these two issues were when it comes to idle drift or intentional denial. The word for drift that the writer of the book of Hebrews employs has reference in other pieces of literature to three key things. One of them is when you wear a ring which is maybe one or two sizes too big for your finger. Most of the time you're kind of clever and you can keep it on your finger. But there may be a day when in the pressures of the activities in which you are engaged, it pops off. You don't realize that that's happened until two days later. And by then you realize that you have been separated from something that was really precious. You didn't realize it. You didn't know it was happening, but it happened. You let it drift. The second word, uh, or second um, application for the word, is a kitchen one, where you've got a clay pot. Fill it with water, and it's doing good. But the clay pot has a small leak that's never been plugged. So on Monday, it's full of water. It looks great. By Friday, it's as dry as a bone. And everybody wonders, what happened here? What an application for people who've got areas, small areas of their Christian life that they've never adequately plugged and dealt with. It could be sucking the life out of you. Drift. The third one is, of course, a ship or a boat that wasn't moored or tied properly to the riverbank. Because it wasn't moored properly, the current just took it downstream. Maybe even further than downstream, out to the sea and it was lost. Any unmoored ship can drift. Any untethered, unanchored vessel can drift. And that's the word that this writer used. And I think it probably describes the backsliding nature of a lot of people in church who before they realize it are separated from something precious and they started so well in their Christian faith and in their discipleship, but something has got them off track. Or they just didn't, as I said, plug those holes in discipleship. They came to Jesus. And Jesus will accept you as you are and the grace of God's justification blesses you and declares you righteous and a saint before God. But justification isn't the only thing that God does. He does sanctification, which is the ongoing process of moral transformation. So he calls you a saint and then he says, now I'm going to make you one. But you've got to let him do that. You've got to let him plug the holes in your life. And without allowing him to do his fullest work in making you a saint, there's things which can leak out of your life. And you were doing so well and suddenly now you're so dry. Your spiritual life doesn't have the vitality it used to. Your Bible reading doesn't have the same joy that it used to have. Your prayer life is non-existent. You rarely give any money or time to the work of God. You've lost your focus. You're drifting. Intentional denial is probably more sinister. In Hebrews 6, verse 4 to 6, it says, it is impossible. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Now listen to how deep this goes. They were once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, who have fallen away, 
to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. The writer's clear. He's saying, if you knowingly turn around and deny the faith, you know it's true. You know the word of God was real. You know there was transforming power over your life. You tasted the gifts of the Spirit. You saw God work miraculously to confirm his word. But you suddenly said, well, in the light of the pressure that I'm under, in the light of these external circumstances that have destabilized me, I'm done. I no longer identify as a Christian. Well, the danger for these believers who had Jewish tradition was this. They could convince themselves, and others did too, look, if you retreat away from your public allegiance to Christ, you're not drifting into atheism, where you don't believe in God. You're just returning to Judaism. But the writer of the book of Hebrews says this, listen, you need to understand that everything that the Jewish tradition projected, as wonderful as it was, is a shadow of the reality. And the truth of all of that is in Christ. The picture that, that all of that tradition was signposting is in Jesus. This is God's redemptive hope. Your tradition was able to cover sins for a while, but it was John the Baptist who looked at his cousin on the banks of the Jordan and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is God's redemptive answer for all of humanity's fall. So if you say, I don't want him, there is no plan B. If you reject God's offer of salvation through Christ, you can find salvation nowhere else. That's why the writer says, it's impossible for you to find truth. When you've said no to truth, when you've tasted truth, when it's been your personal experience, and you then stand up and say, I don't want this anymore. I no longer identify as a Christian. Because I want an easy life. I don't want a pressured free life. He warned them. He said, those who rejected the message that the angels brought in the old covenant suffered loss. And some of those carcasses are still in the wilderness. Those who rejected the law and the leadership of Moses suffered loss. Their carcasses are still in the wilderness. It says in Hebrews 3 verse 14, for if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. How could anybody misunderstand that? Stay faithful. Stay focused. And this superficial, sloppy behavior of so-called Christian living in our day, ladies and gentlemen, it is not good enough. If you think that that's okay to live in that manner and you're still going to heaven and enjoy the full blessings of God, you will suffer consequential losses for living a superficial life. I need to let you know that I don't know how many preachers are really going into the expositional truths of Scripture, but here's Scripture telling us no holds barred, eyes wide open. If you act like a fool with your Christian life, you will suffer consequence. It's as simple as that. But God's heart is that you move into the fullness of his promise. 
Every family coming out of Egypt that had the blood of the lamb over their home, that went through the Red Sea baptism or the baptism in the cloud, or they lived uh, by the water that came out of the rock that followed them, which was Christ, or they lived under the new leadership under Moses rather than under Pharaoh. God's intention was that they would all transition into the place of promise and blessing and benefit. That was his purpose. But some of them rebelled. They rejected what he had to say. They complained. I'll tell you in a moment what they did. And the consequence for that was that they suffered loss. Some irretrievably. And this writer says, I'm writing to you to warn you that you don't make the same mistakes. That's what he said. It's gone quiet in here today, hasn't it? Because he points out that the loss in view, obviously for the ancient people, was the failure to arrive at the place of peace that God had promised his people. But the land of peace under Joshua was just a picture of what was to come. And even here, under Joshua, some people didn't make it in due to their rebellion and negligence. The real place of peace and the place of rest is an eternal one, as we know. But only our focused perseverance will access the grace to make sure we arrive at this destination. Oh, I've had lots of discussions with my friends about predestination, and I had to tell them. Predestination means a predetermined destination. So if I make plans to go on holiday with my wife to the Bahamas, the hotel that we call will say, thank you, sir, your room is booked. It's just waiting for you. See you soon. Click. But two weeks before, my wife and I decided, you know what? Forget the Bahamas. We're going to Geneva. What happens to my room in the Bahamas? I lost access to that, right? Because I decided to go somewhere else and take a different track. This is just simple, very easy to understand. If you want to make it to the destination you've been promised and it's been planned for, just stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. But if you act the fool, and you're superficial, you're sneaky, you're deceitful, you live with sin in your life, and you try to come to church and pretend everything's okay, when you know it's not, and you've backslidden, you can suffer loss. And if you stand up and deny what you know to be true, you can suffer irretrievable loss. I don't know how many pastors preach this stuff because they're scared that their members will not come back and stop tithing. But this isn't my church, so. (laughs) Oh, because I do get the challenge from people saying, well, what you're saying, Pastor Doug, sounds to us as if you believe that Christians can lose their salvation. That's what you're saying, Pastor Doug. And I'm going, "Mm." no, it's not actually. I've always considered that that term, that Christians lose their salvation, is really crude and unhelpful. Because losing something paints the picture for me of the consequence associated with mindless negligence. You know, I lose my keys. Where did I put my gloves? I've lost my umbrella. And my spectacle. This isn't what's under discussion here. But some people have that conviction. And, they, and I guess if I were to summarize the teaching of once saved, always saved, it would be like this. Once saved, always saved is the realization 
that God's plan of salvation is absolutely perfect. A person whom God has chosen for salvation cannot be unsaved, unredeemed, unreconciled, unforgiven, or lost, forsaken, abandoned, or cast out. Good works and obedience cannot earn salvation, and neither can a lack thereof result in the loss of salvation. The biblical truth of once saved, always saved, puts the focus of salvation where it should be, on the holy and omnipotent God who finishes what he starts. Listen, this discussion is not about losing salvation. These believers in the book of Hebrews are not losing their salvation. The temptation is to leave their salvation. That's a whole different discussion. And the writer of the book of Hebrews clearly believed that such a thing was possible, that you could walk away from what you know to be true. You could drift from it. You could even deny it. They clearly, this writer believed that. But, you know, the additional thoughts for me is this. If these warnings about leaving Christ are baseless and meaningless, well, then including such things in the biblical text is untrue and manipulative. It shouldn't be in here. But the writer of such material would then be considered without credibility. I trust this writer. I believe this is the word of God. And I believe warnings need to be heard. Look, the term once saved, always saved, is one that I can't find in my Bible anyway. (laughs) I can't find it in there. Um, And you need to be very careful about using terms which aren't in the Bible. I've got to create a term to bring it in. No, no. Look, when it comes to once saved, always saved, I think when I look at it theologically, I can agree with it as long as you understand what once saved means. So I'm not dismissing the term out of hand. I'm saying it needs reflection and re-engineering. Because when I look at the nuances in the New Testament of what it means to be saved, there are different time frames. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Thank God for the justification that declares me to be forgiven of my sins and absolutely acquitted of all wrongdoing because of Christ. That's justification. That's past tense. But now, currently, I am being saved from the power of sin. Although God calls me a saint, now he's setting to work on me to make me a saint. And that's the ongoing process of moral transformation. What a wonderful thing. It's called sanctification. But at some point, I am absolutely going to be removed from the presence of sin. That's called glorification. But when all of those processes are completed, that's once saved. So I have the promise of all of those things and the assurance that if I'm focused and faithful, that's all going to happen for me. But like I said, if I choose Geneva rather than the Bahamas, I could miss out. Look, in Romans 8, verse 23 to 25, it says, And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Anybody say amen? Amen. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he's promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't have to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. Part of your salvation package is a brand new body that's immortal. It's sustained and animated by resurrection life. Anybody got one of those this morning? I didn't think so. 
But the promise is you're going to get one if you remain faithful. So stay put and hold steady. And everything God promised you will come. But I'm warning sloppy, superficial, mucking about Christians. It's time to fix up. It's time to fix up. You might be playing, but God isn't. The book of Hebrews makes it clear. Drifting away from or indeed denying the truth of the supreme gospel of Christ will lead to inevitable and possibly irretrievable loss. It's very clear. If you want to know about that from other texts, Jesus said failure to overcome and live victoriously can lead to deletion. In Revelation 3 verse 4 to 5 it says, Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. And I will never erase their names from the book of life. But I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Can Jesus do that? Can Jesus erase somebody's name from the book of life? He promised that for those who were faithful and victorious, he wouldn't. But you can only promise that you won't if the possibility that you could exists. That's Jesus. I didn't say that. He told a church that for people who weren't victorious and didn't walk with him appropriately and live in the light of what they knew in terms of salvation, they could be deleted. Wow. The Apostle Paul outlined another possibility when he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 to 27, but so I run with purpose in every step, not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. That's not just I, I lost out on the first prize and I came in a little bit lower in the pecking order. Disqualification means you're out of the race. You don't get on the scoreboard. Paul said, I am really disciplining my life. I'm living a focused life because I realize I've got such a responsibility of preaching to others. And I don't want this to happen, that when I've preached to everybody else and done so well at sharing the gospel with them, that I miss out on the benefits of the gospel because my own living has been so undisciplined. That's why I fight, keep myself fit. Wow. Thank you, Paul. What about the Apostle John who said this in 1 John chapter 13? I write this to you who believe in the Son of God. If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that doesn't lead to death, you should pray, and God will give that person life. But there is a sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin. But not every sin leads to death. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. That's the promise for those who remain focused, who do not habitually continue with sinning, who do not have sinful practice that's never been disciplined. Because sometimes I have the concern that, you know, you deal with Christians, and I think, am I expecting Christian living from people who aren't really saved? You know, it's getting that serious in church. I'm seeing, honestly, I am. I'm telling you the truth now. 
Real talk. We need to be sure that people have actually had a born-again experience. I was preaching at my friend's church you know, a few years ago, and one of the friends of the church is the undertaker who did all of the funeral services for them. And he was in the, in the congregation. And as part of my illustration, I said, you know something? And I was speaking to the undertaker. I said, sometimes I really envy your job. And everybody was like, really? I said, I really envy your job because when you get people straightened out, they stay that way. But me as a pastor, <laughs> they're okay in this counseling session, but by the next one, we're all out of shape again. I said, wow, well, at least when you get them straightened out, they stay that way. <laughs> and you know, they should do if they had really died in Christ. If their life was dead, they died to sin and they became alive to God. We should be able to say the same thing. But we're not being able to say that. We're not being able to say that. Listen, I know that the reading of these texts is very uncomfortable for modern Christians. Okay? And some may have not even read them until right now. However, this is intentional. Because the writer is sounding a warning. It's a siren, not a lullaby. He doesn't want you to go off to sleep. He wants you to be awake like everything else. So the real difficulty when we read passages like this is not our understanding of them. Our real difficulty is how we're going to apply them. Because now we are without ignorance. We can't claim we don't know. None of you in this room can claim that now. I'm sorry. You know. If you never knew, now you know. That you can't act the fool and think it's going to be okay with God. It attracts consequence. It's time to fix up. Time to fix up. If the resistance and rebellion of God's ancient people was disciplined with delay, denial, and death, as far as the scriptures are concerned, some of those carcasses are still in the wilderness. They never made it into the land of promise. God took them on more years going round and round in that dusty scape than they should have been because he wanted to make sure that some could make it in. But you know, it became very, very clear that although you get these people out of Egypt, getting Egypt out of them is another story. <laughs> nah. Let's go back to Egypt. Cucumbers and fish. All the things that we used to... And they suddenly forgot that they were slaves as well. Listen. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 to 12, Paul outlines the journey of that ancient people and says this is the reason why some of them didn't make it in. He's telling a church at Corinth, he's telling a church of New Testament believers like us to be warned. Like the book of Hebrews is saying, you believers, hear this and be warned. The ancient sins were these. They craved evil things. They had undisciplined appetites and desires that they never brought under leash and control. They worshipped idols. This is a God substitute that takes the priority place in your life and will dictate the decisions that you make. Idolatry is a very dangerous thing. You are controlled and manipulated by it. Engaging in sexual immorality 
I can't tell you how many young men have been through my office saying, it's, I got myself into major problems with sexuality, Pastor, because I was watching pornography in secret. And nobody knew. Nobody knew. Sexual immorality was shaping my thinking and my values until eventually it changed the way I behaved. Are you listening today? Is this making sense to people? I might come up in here and rant and rave. We're going to have a real Holy Ghost shout out. But this is real talk because the church is not stable. In our day, the church is undergoing a little bit of a transition and we're trying to get people to get properly anchored again. Maybe the upset of COVID was a good thing in some ways because it shows us who's for real and who isn't. Who's taking this thing with gravity and who isn't. They argued with Moses about what God was doing. It says they put Christ to the test. We don't like it coming this way. Why are we out here eating this manna? What's going on? They, they, challenged, they challenged the concept that God was as good as we know him to be in terms of taking care of his people. Some of you are in that place, man. If God is as good as they say he is, why am I still single? Oh, it's gone quiet. Why don't I have that? Why didn't I get that job? Why didn't I get that promotion? They challenge. Is God, is, is God as good as they say he is? They just began to complain. Some of them complained about their leaders. They complained and they grumbled. And one set of people who complained about the leaders actually ended up going alive into hell. Oh, those who complain about their leaders or try to undermine leadership, be careful with that. I said, be careful with that. God doesn't play with that. Aaron's rod budded, and that was God saying, this is my choice. This is the leader. And the others who challenged it, we don't know about them, do we? The story's done. Listen, there was grumbling, there was complaining, there was all kinds of stuff going off. In the modern day, I'll finish with this in just a few moments, but in the modern day, I was at a conference recently and I, t and, and I, and I was talking about these things. And I said, listen, one of our problems is biblical literacy in the church. Our churches are ignorant of God's word. They don't do personal study. They have little snippets and sound bites for personal devotion. They don't really know the word of God. The Bible Society did a, uh, some research in the Church of England and said, how many of you uh, congregants read scripture when you leave church? You know what, 60% said, we don't read the Bible when, we, when we're out of church. How can you defend a faith? How can you live in a faith that you're ignorant of? How can you? So we've got people even in this church who never come for the Bible studies. You don't have any personal study. You don't have any discipline process of really understanding the Bible you have in your hand or on your device. But you still claim to be a committed Christian. If you've got the resources to study God's word and you don't, you're backslidden. You are backslidden. Let's just call it for what it is. 
If you're living somewhere in a country or a situation where you have no access to the Word of God, I can't blame you for not reading and studying. You don't have resource. But for people who live in this country who have got more resources than they would ever need, who don't find themselves studying God's Word to show themselves approved as work people that don't need to be ashamed because studying is work. We're just lazy. Sorry. We're just lazy. And we think we can just drift through, through on a few preacher's jokes and some nice singing. And that's our Christianity. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The second thing I raised was the issue that we have not identified our um, teaching from Scripture properly. We sound more like an echo of culture than an explanation of Scripture. The BBC website I read said there's a hundred genders. A hundred genders? Are you kidding me? My Bible says that there's two. Now, some, I mean, some of them, you, could, you can be a very effeminate man, but you're still a man. You can be a very masculine woman. You're still a woman. And you can't change that through DNA. So I'm not about to disavow in sociology what we're teaching children in biology. Hello? But I'm meeting Christians now. I go, well, you know, it's possible. One of my friends, a lovely Christian counselor, was counseling one of the ladies who's her client and said, I know you're struggling with the fact that your daughter has same-sex attraction. But you know what? I think God's okay with that. And I said... To my friend, I said, where, where did you get the theological framework to tell a client that? She said, well, I've been reading you know, up on this stuff. I said, no, I said, a theological framework. What's your Christian understanding? Where did you go to the Bible? Where did you go and speak to Christian leaders to come up with that thinking? She said, mm, probably need to do more work about that. I haven't done. So I said, what's happened to you is your thinking has been shaped by the culture, not by Scripture. We've got loads of people like that in church because they don't study the Bible. And then one of the other things, I need to, I need to quit now because it's time, time's gone. <laughs> you've been good. Sorry, thank you. But you've got this problem in church, and I call it serial adultery. Let me explain what serial adultery is. Jesus said, if you don't have biblical grounds for your divorce, any subsequent marriage you have is illegal in God's eyes. We've got dozens, I mean thousands of people who have said, if I can hire myself a smart mouth lawyer who can get me out of this marriage because of irreconcilable differences and irretrievable breakdown and uh, non-disclosure arrangements so we don't talk about this anymore, I can go across town, remarry, pop up in Pastor So-and-So's church down the way and everybody just lets me continue. Nobody knows. If you count God in, then somebody knows. <laughs> but we've got this problem. We've got, listen, like, we have got thousands of people in our churches whose marital arrangements do not have the affirmation of God. It's serial adultery. And unless they get that sorted out before God and confess that as sin, it's a problem. Here, 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, which means, and this is the chilling truth, unconfessed sin in the life of a believer is unforgiven sin. And I don't care what Joseph Prince says. 
I listened to Joseph Prince when I was on holiday saying, Christians don't have to pray for forgiveness anymore. It's all done by the blood of Jesus. We're forgiven, past, present, future. Look, when I gave my heart to Jesus and I confessed my sin, all of my past was under the blood. And I thank God for that. And potentially, he has the power to forgive any of my sins going forward. But he doesn't expect me to just do anything, live any old how. There was never provision, even in the law of Moses, for intentional sinning. The law said if somebody unwittingly and unintentionally does his provision. No, you can't just say, I, 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 I've been forgiven. I can act any old how. I don't need to ask forgiveness. The moment you find sin in your life, Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our sins. Jesus taught us to pray. And let me say this. I mentioned a preacher's name. But I trust Jesus more than I trust any preacher. Simple as that. Friends, we have to, and I'm going to get out of here because I'm going to get shot. We have to get back to the point where we're checking our lives. That we acknowledge where we are harboring sinning. We write it down. Make sure that we're living right. That we repent and renounce of those things which are wrong. Especially with its occult ties and confusions. We deal with sexual sins strongly and robustly. We do not let this continue. We're willing to submit for proper accountability to make sure our lives are checked and that we are being held to account for the way that we live. We are willing to reorder our lives and reset kingdom priorities over the way we live. And I'm urging you to pray more than you do. Even to pray in the language the Holy Spirit gives you for longer periods than you have done. You have a wonderful gift of tongues. The Spirit of God has given us the ability to pray when our minds are too tired or too confused to pray. We have a way of praying. And when we pray in that way, the Bible says, he who prays in an unknown tongue edifies himself, seriously charges the spiritual batteries. There's a way to stop drift. There's a way to discern it. There's a way to be aware of it. And I trust this morning I've helped you in some measure to rethink this important subject. May God richly bless you.